All right, today we're continuing with our eight essential elements of the Biblical Christian Gospel series. We are, have been on now for a while, uh, I guess this is the sixth week, on element six, which is receiving Jesus Christ or responding to the gospel. If you'll look at Roman numeral one, you'll see the eight elements, and the reason I have number six a little bolder and underlined is that I always put the one we're currently doing a little bolder. Uh, so this uh, can also be, you could think about it as receiving, which is a very active word, or responding uh, is another active word and tends to be used uh, more in more modern circles. Our first 20 messages were, uh, we defined the, the bad news and saw the d depth of the gap between God and man. Our next 28 messages or so, 29 I guess, we looked at uh, how Jesus Christ is the only mediator who br bridges the gap and uh, we did about 29 me messages on the person and ministry of Christ. And uh, much more could be said about that. I hope to actually write a book someday called Consider Jesus based on Hebrews 11 twice tells us to consider Jesus. So uh, Roman numeral four is our theme verse for, for element six. Jesus came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, which is a definite, quantifiable, understandable, active uh, thing that there's elements to. And we're looking at all the biblical words that center around the concept of receiving him right now. That's what we are doing. As many as received him, to them he gave the exousia, which means both the power and the right, the authority and the power. And that's very important to understand biblically. There's nothing that you can just have intellectual assent to. That is the curse of non-Holy Spirit non-powerful, uh, non-encounters with God, non-miraculous Christianity today. You have it in your head, but you don't necessarily have it in your experience. And you don't have it changing you. You muster up the energy by your performance base to be as good a Christian as you can. And so you constantly fail and constantly fail and constantly fail. Because the Christian life is not difficult, it's impossible. And it can only be... Uh, lived by great, ongoing, daily, powerful encounters with the Spirit of God. And by definition, God is a spirit, and those who worship must worship in spirit and truth. As you have encounters with the Spirit of God, He changes your motivations. He changes your attitudes. He changes the desires of your heart. He changes your affections. He changes what you love and what you hate. One of the prayers I always pray is, God, help me love what you love and hate what you hate. And um, so, uh, and that can only be done by the power of regeneration in, in the new birth and by the power of the Holy Spirit in increasing encounters with the Holy Spirit in your life all the time. Otherwise, you just ha have what Paul told the Corinthians, are you not walking like mere men? If your life could be lived by a normal human being, it's not a Christian life. You should be able to point to things that happen to you every day that I could only have this happen by the supernatural intervention of God. No natural-minded person could experience this. So that is kind of the curse of modern uh, unbelieving Christianity that came out of the French Revolution and the Enlightenment and the deism of, of our founding fathers and uh, that whole world view that has settled deeply in Western culture. We have a natural-minded, uh, human, carnal Christian experience. And this, I, I can't, uh, I can't, uh, um, I can't uh, stress enough, if you look at Roman numeral 6 where I say, note, it must be combined with experience versus mere theoretical knowledge. That, that is so huge. You have to be able to say, this is when the day that I, God convicted me of this selfish ambition or uh, unforgiveness or whatever. And this is the day that he gave me the power to change, that he changed my heart about it. That is the essence of walking with God. This is, you know, uh, today is the day of salvation. And salvation is real, tangible, and powerful. 
and it should create a new creation. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creature. You're from a different creation, the new heavens, the new earth. You're not of this world anymore. So uh, we looked at in Roman numeral five there, we looked at the importance of spiritual vocabulary or jargon, that we need spiritual words taught by the Holy Spirit. And these are not just, again, conceptual words. These are spiritual words and spiritual means life-changing. It means powerful. By definition, when the spirit inhabits the natural, uh, as 1 Corinthians 12 brings out, there are phenomena, there are manifestations. If the spirit you cannot ever see the Holy Spirit, but you can always see, like the wind blows the trees, you can always see the effect of the Holy Spirit in changed lives and healings and deliverances. And, and I used to be like this, and I could never have gotten this out of my heart, but God changed me. I was talking to a young man yesterday who came under tremendous conviction listening to the podcast of these, because uh, he serves in our Sunday school, and doesn't always get to hear the messages live, and so but he came under tremendous conviction about a bunch of things like selfish ambition and, and uh, wanting to be noticed and everything like that, and all of us have this stuff, but as we said in the word conviction, you are unable to convict yourself. You can kind of reason and examine yourself and say, well, maybe I might, but you can't see it how God sees it unless the Holy Spirit brings you under conviction by the word of God by someone who loves you, admonishing you. That's why people who don't want to be convicted by the Holy Spirit say, it's none of your business. <laughs> don't, don't confront me with these things. Uh, don't, don't, they'll always say, don't judge. That's a modern thing. Um, so uh, these, these words have to be in our experience. So in Roman numeral six there, we have a list of words we've looked at so far. I don't want to take time to... Uh, to review those, so jump down to Roman numeral 7, which is a, a review of the words we have covered in the last couple weeks, and we've been looking at conviction, and um, if you notice, conviction means convict, convicted, reprove, reprove, rebuke, convince, expose. Now, the Holy Spirit uses three primary agents, we call them the delivery systems of grace, or the primary agents of God's kingdom to bring you under conviction. You cannot convict yourself. You might be able to see from like a distance, I know I've got some kind of pride in my heart and so forth. You can't possibly see it from God's perspective and the depth and how much it actually is strangling your life unless God, by his spirit, enlightens you. And he will, by the three agencies of his word or his spirit or his people, usually the three working together in some way. And that's why I actually wanted to, uh, you know, one of the reasons it's, this series is getting holed up is I just keep held up, that is, is I keep thinking of things I should have covered because it's almost, these words are so rich, it's almost impossible to have any measure of covering the whole thing. So look at Psalm 141, verse 5 there in, in Roman numeral 7a. Let the righteous smite me with, in kindness and reprove me. It's oil upon the head. Do not let my head refuse it. Now, this has been one of my prayers since... Uh, 1974, when I first started walking with the Lord, and the Lord showed me uh, through my uh, parents being at a certain good place in the Lord, and they had some things that, that God had imparted to them. They had a little certain levels of character and maturity and so forth, and they taught me this. Like, you cannot make progress without your brothers and sisters. And so my prayer has always been, the psalmist says, let the righteous smite me in kindness and reprove me. It's oil upon the head. Don't let my head refuse it. Now, that's a decision you have to make in life. My prayer has always been, whether it's kindness or not, let the righteous smite me. Because I really don't even care if they have the right attitude. I don't care if it's none of their business. I don't care if they're being busybodies. I don't care if it's not their sphere of authority. I care if there's something that I can see, like, like the Bible talks about looking at the word of God in a mirror. And so one of the things God taught me early is when someone's confronting me and I don't get it or I don't want to get it, <laughs> is usually more the case, I just listen. I don't rebut. I don't give them an answer. I usually come back to them a week later or so 
after I've let it work in me a little. One of the things I had to learn, I, I was pastored by a certain guy who was quite different than me in temperament for about five years. And then they rearranged the home groups in the Bowling Green Church, and I was pastored by the head pastor because I was now leading a ministry that was uh, growing and fruitful and bringing a lot of people into the church. And so the head pastor wanted to work with me more closely. But we were gifted in the same sort of way. So when I asked him a question, he would give me the full biblical teaching. You know, that this is how it affects the seven spheres, which is how I would approach it. And so the very first time he started doing this, something rose up inside of me, my flesh, that wanted to say, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> but I decided right then and there, don't say I know. Don't throw it off in any way. Don't say it's none of your business. Don't say it's who are you to judge. Don't say I already know all this stuff. Just listen. Because if I don't, because the natural tendency of our flesh is to not want it to prick us, to not want it to cut us. And I said, if I just keep my mouth shut and then pray into this for a week or two and, and take the possibility that maybe he's seeing something that I'm not seeing as deep as I need to see, God will show me great things. But if I get defensive about what I already know, I'll miss that 10% of what he's saying that God might want to really convict me by. Now that very one decision in his office that one day that the Holy Spirit showed me has changed my destiny. And that's why there's, you know, as I look out in this church, especially those of us who've been here two, three, four years to all the way up to, you know, some people like John have been here off and on from the beginning or Jason in uh, Sydney, but uh, Edwin came in 2005, and there, there's probably very few people sitting in these pews that at one time or another haven't brought a word to me that, it, that I just said, hmm, okay, sure, thanks for sharing. And then later, I really gave it some thought, and it brought revelation to me. It brought conviction. It brought confrontation. It brought admonishment. It helped me think differently. It even helped me know, in some cases, how to reach this person pastorally better. So I wish I had covered that more. Uh, by the way, the word, when Jesus says don't judge, he's, uh, that is so misused. It's the doctrine of our flesh in the modern times, don't judge. And what that means is this, in biblically, not, not in our flesh, it means don't, don't confront me, don't, don't have an opinion, mind your own business. But in the Bible, if you study it all out, it it would, the Bible doesn't contradict itself. So it's not saying don't evaluate. And it's not saying we're not our brother's keepers and, it's, and so forth. Now, there are admonitions about being busybodies. And if you look at the Greek on that, the word actually means shep, uh, self-appointed shepherds. And there are times where you basically kind of just need to observe a behavior and say, this is not my sphere of responsibility or whatever, and just give, keep giving it to the Lord. And the Lord has other people besides you and other circumstances besides this that he can bring this to light and help this person. Sometimes it's better. I, I do that a lot pastorally. I just leave it alone <laughs> and, uh, and don't speak into it. And that was taught to me by a pastor friend back in, again, way back, maybe in that case, about 1982 or so. But uh, but what it it doesn't mean don't evaluate. It means when you bring a word of correction, don't be condemning in the sense that you're not reminding yourself, Galatians 6, 1, if anyone's caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one, looking to yourself lest you too be tempted. You always have to confront out of the, out of the deep knowledge that there but by the grace of God go I. And someone who's full of humility will also be full of grace. Yeah, I know you have this anger management problem. I know you see people too negatively or whatever. But I was, believe me, I know what unforgiveness and bitterness can do to your life. And I'm not here to condemn you about it. I'm here to help you be released from it. That's what that means doesn't mean don't evaluate or don't speak into our brothers and sisters' lives. 
you know, I'm in this season right now, frankly, of studying a lot. I've been studying six to 12 hours every day. And I'm counting on you guys, as, as Paul says in Romans 15, that you're fully able to admonish one another, that is, counsel one another. I'm counting that you're discipling each other. All right. Confession, we looked at that word, and it's uh, kind of a, uh, two, two meanings of confession. One is kind of a negation Confessing our sins, our misdeeds, our wrong motives, our wrong attitudes, and an affirmation, praise, uh, testifying, witnessing. That's why Jesus, when he's confessing, says, I praise you, Lord of heaven and earth. And uh, I just read a very interesting uh, blog by a Reformed thinker yesterday who was arguing for one of the greatest mistakes that Protestants have ever made was doing away with the, what the Catholics call the sacrament of confession or the sacrament of penance, uh, now called the sacrament of reconciliation in modern times. All related words, of course. And believe me, you do need to confess your sins one to another. This Protestant idea that I only need to tell God will leave you bound up at the starting gate of your Christian life for your entire Christian life. Because in confessing your sins to, uh, to someone, doesn't have to be an elder, that's where we would differ. We believe in the priesthood of all believers. They don't have to be officially recognized by the church. But on the other hand, you have to watch the tendency that many have taught on, the Proverbs that talks about the words of a whisper. There's a tendency in our flesh to, to want to open things up to someone who's going to be sympathetic in a fleshly way. Just wanted to tell you about Sister Bertha so we can pray about it. <laughs> you know, gossip. <laughs> That's called, you know, and, and we have this tendency to have the spirit of Absalom who waited outside the gates of Jerusalem. Uh, and he, everyone who was coming to, to the courts to be adjudicated, Absalom would turn them aside and give them a more fleshly uh, and a more sinful but a more favorable to their to their what their pride and their selfish interest wanted decision, and he stole the hearts of Israel away from David and away from God. One of the things you need to be careful of is that you don't have just a bunch of single brothers together saying, "Well, we confess this." This is something that happens in marriage all the time. Husbands and wives get covenants of the flesh. I won't challenge you if you don't challenge me. I'll let your addiction to marshmallows go if you let my addiction to laziness go or whatever you know like it, really it's called a covenant of the flesh uh we we don't we don't uh challenge each other to grow in the lord and believe me lots of guys end up courting and vice versa for the because they're looking for someone who won't be too challenging That's, that's a lot of what people are, looking, are drawn to. Like, I'm looking for someone who's going to let me get away with not growing. Let's move on from confession. Hope you think about that one a little. Today, with the remaining time, i got 25 minutes. I want to talk, flip over, and we're going to talk about the word contrite. Now, if you get this word, it will change your life. So, um, I hope you'll really pay attention. I hope you'll take the outlines. It, it irks me so much that I found that I find the outlines in the pews. And I, th I suspect there's probably some of you who don't even have a notebook that you're putting these in or, or a file drawer and that you're not actually getting them out a few times a year and going back over them, which would be ridiculous. One of the craziest things about your, uh, this generation is our lackadaisical apathy. Like, I, when I came to Christ, within a week or two, I had a notebook and took notes at every teaching before there were outlines, before there were PowerPoints, because everybody else in the churches did. And what's amazing to me, one of the things that blew my mind, we went to a certain church Back around the year, oh, 2000, 1999, 2000. And the guy had a master's degree in biblical studies. And I, for the first time in my life, I saw people sitting in the pews not taking notes. 
And I thought, what kind of disrespect to God is this? this? We're going to look at a verse today about those who tremble at God's word. That is ridiculous. That's part of why you have Christians who are two and three years old in the Lord and even older sometimes who hardly know the whole Bible. I hope to God you're not three years old in the Lord and you've never read the whole Bible through and you haven't read the New Testament three or more times and the Old Testament one or more times. Because if you are, then you're fooling yourself. You don't really believe your faith. You don't believe that all scripture is inspired by God if, if, if video games are more important and you know movie night with your girlfriend is more important or any other such nonsense. You know, I always encourage the courting couples, before you have to do anything, have one study night of God's word together every week. Read some of our intermediate books. Read whole books of the Bible. You know, some years back, uh, Tiffany and Emily started a thing where Emily just would have Tiffany over once a week. And they would first read one of our intermediate or foundational books. And then we, they would do a study, a book of the Bible. In last week, we had a deliverance with Tiffany, which was our most effective one to date in the history of this church, partly because Emily sowed the word of God into Tiffany for three or four years. To... And they rarely missed, as far as I understand, right? You guys were pretty consistent on that. So... Um, Tremble at God's word, value God's word. If you look at Matthew 13, the sower and the seed is usually called what is the soil. The three kind of guys that didn't bear fruit all had one common sin. They under-evaluated the word of the kingdom. They didn't have time to nourish, water, plant, weed, cultivate, fertilize the word. All right, let's get into this word contrite. Uh, I, I'm really trying to help you see that if you get this word working in your life, this will deliver your soul from, you name it. And this is beyond remorse. We're going to talk next week about the difference between remorse and repentance. We'll probably be on the word repent for two weeks. Uh, Psalm 51, 17 a lot of people know there are seven penitential psalms. Psalm 51 and Psalm 32 are my favorites. This is the one that David spoke after his sin with Bathsheba and his cover-up by killing Uriah the Hittite. So if you think, uh, you know, your sins have made you beyond hope, it's really how you respond to them that counts. So David says in the midst of a great psalm, I hope you'll read the whole thing, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, or some translations say heart, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Now that contrite is used by the NASB, the ESV, and New King James Version. And the Greek word there, teta painomene, is, uh, appears in Isaiah 58.10 and Lamentations 2.5 in the Greek version of the, of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. And the symbol there is LXX for Septuagint. Um, it means, uh, well, we'll get into what it means. Let's do one more verse on it. This Psalm 34, 18. I wish I had time, and I just pray that you'll do this. You know, honor God, honor me, honor somebody, honor yourself. <laughs> Read these two Psalms this week, the whole Psalms. These two Psalms are about how to, how to walk with God. If you don't have enough power of God in your life, if you don't have enough uh, places where God's changing your life, spend some time meditating on Psalm 34 and Psalm 51. They're two of the great, the top 20 or 25 psalms about how to know and live with and walk with God and have him change you from day to day, from glory to glory, from fragrance to fragrance, from, from experience in his courts to another experience in his court. I wish I had more time to read this, but Psalm 34, 18 says, The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and save such as have a contrite spirit. Now, that's the New King James. Uh, the New American Standard and the ESV say crushed. And so what I want to do with that is get into the definition of tetrapenomenine. 
to humble ourselves, to abase ourselves, to afflict. It was used of fasting to afflict, as you see in the next verse uh, that we'll list. It, it's, uh, it means to attain a lower rank. Now think of how counterintuitive that is to the natural mind. To attain a lower rank. Like, I just want to be a lower rank in the church, Lord. I want to be a more lowly servant. You know, I want to go from doing the dishes twice a week for the church to doing the dishes seven times a week for the church or whatever. You know, I just want to be, you know, become a doorman. I want to be the first one there to pray in the presence of God, whatever. That's what it means. Uh, it reduce, disparage, minimize. It's actually used uh, in when a man violates a woman. And it's actually kind of like letting the word of God convict you so much that it's kind of raping you. It's kind of breaking your spirit. Kind of uh, taking that gosh darn concrete heart of stone pride and breaking it up. And giving us a heart of flesh. Uh, it means to regret, to show sincere remorse. Uh, we're going to talk about remorse versus repentance next week. To be filled with a sense of guilt and a desire for atonement, to be penitent, remorseful, and to be resolved to avoid future sin. That's what contrite means. If you haven't taken any steps to avoid future sins, you're probably not contrite. So... Uh, Psalm 35, 13, David is praying, He says, and he's praying about how the wicked were abusing him and oppressing him and so forth, but his, his response to them, but as for me, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. I afflicted, and there's that same word, I afflicted my soul with fasting, and my prayer kept returning to my bosom. Is that what you're doing towards people who are unkind to you? If you're contrite in spirit, that's what will be coming out of your life just normally. Now, in Leviticus 23, 26 through 32 is uh, about the very famous day called the Day of Atonement. And it was a day that God had called Israel to understand the atonement of sin, that it would be God himself that would have to be sacrificed, that, that uh, all the sheep, bulls, and goats, and so forth were just foreshadowings and, and just symbolic for the one true sacrifice that Abraham had promised Isaac, God himself will be the sacrifice. And um, they basically afflicted their soul with fasting. Psalm 58 is actually a, a chapter that has about 10 or to 12, depending on how you count them, promises for fasting and about six conditions for your attitudes and motivations for fasting. And you're missing out on those rewards if you're not doing that. And guess what? Psalm 58 is written for the Day of Atonement fast. It doesn't, it takes a one-day fast. It doesn't take a 40-day fast. And that's why Christians, uh, from the earliest times, uh, it, it, from the first century, Christians fasted on Wednesdays and Fridays. And that's a, that's a tradition that's come back in, through, through the centuries. Uh, Mark, um, John Wesley would not ordain a person to lead one of his small home groups throughout England, unless they practice fasting at least till dinner time every Wednesday and every Friday. If you don't fast regularly, you're missing out. That would be like saying, uh, I'll, I'll put a $100 bill on, in an envelope on my front porch every day for you, and all you got to do is come over and get it. That's what you're missing out on. You're missing out on something way bigger than that. That's what Psalm 58 is saying. But one of the things that fasting is so helpful for is we're just so gosh darn selfishly ambitious, proud, arrogant, know-it-alls, etc. And fasting afflicts your soul. We are called to humble ourselves. God will put circumstances in your life that can be humiliating if you don't, but he can never humble you. You have to humble yourself. You can ask him to help you humble yourself, to teach you about humility, to show you pride that's hiding, because pride is very deceptive and hides in all kinds of layers. He, you can ask him to, 
to change your attitude about your brothers and sisters confronting you because nothing can help you see most kinds of pride except your brothers and sisters. You can, but in the ultimate end, by the grace of God, you have to choose to receive it. You have to choose to humble yourself. And humbling yourself is part of the daily Christian life. If you can just be humble, you can experience the power of God. People who don't want the baptism in the Spirit, people who don't want to be filled, people who get baptized in the Spirit but then don't really get filled again and again and again, it's because they don't see any desperate need for God because there's no contrition there. I got this. I'm a pretty reasonable person, and I'm, you know, pretty together in my good looks and my bod and my job and my marriage and You know, I I got it together by self-disciplines. So this more of God stuff, I don't know. I actually remember Lee and I actually worked with a lady years ago that uh, read a couple of the books on the baptism of the Spirit that we use, and and, uh, we, we took her through a couple of the teachings on it, and she said, you know, I see this is something very from God, but I already got enough from God. Why would I want more? He's already doing so much in my life. I don't think I really want more from God. I said, wow. Welcome to the modern culture. I got enough from God because he's done a few things in my life. You know, a lot of us just live with God like, you know, we, t- we got some minimum deposits of grace in our life. And we've just said, ah, I was, you know, that's enough. I'm full. I encourage you, when it comes to the hunger of God and for his word, the thirst for God's spirit, the desire to be in his presence, become a glutton. In fact, that's the key to getting delivered from all kinds of other of the seven deadly sins, including gluttony. Uh, so Isaiah 57. For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, I dwell, listen to these words, dwell on high, and a holy place. And also I dwell with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to the revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Now, I gave you a list of translations, New American Standard, English Standard, New King James, King James, Wycliffe, and the Orthodox Jewish Bible that used the word contrite. Young's Little Translation and the very famous Revised Standard Version uses humble. So those are, and in, 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 by the way, the, the word contrite in almost all Bibles except the Mount's interlinear translation um, only appears in the Old Testament. Usually the New Testament equivalent is humble. Humble yourself. Inflict yourself with, with compunction. One more verse, and then I want to share a testimony or two. Isaiah 66, 2 says, For my hand made all these things, thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one will I look. You remember in John 14, 21, when Jesus says, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And the one who loves me will be loved by my Father and will come to him and make our abode with him and he with us. See, God is looking not only to have you have some theoretical temple of God where you receive the Holy Spirit when you prayed the Seer's Prayer, he wants to have you have the tangible, concrete, powerful sense of his presence every day. He wants to dwell in temples of human beings and in one corporate community. And he wants that to be something that's like when the, you know, in the Old Testament, his glory filled the temple so much that the priest couldn't minister. Is that what we experience? You know, and we're in a better covenant. So if our expectation is lower than what you read at the end of Exodus 40 and in uh, 1 Kings 8 and so forth, when they dedicated both the tabernacle and the temple, if you expect the glory of God in our church lower than that, you must repent. If you expect the glory of God in our church, in your life lower than that, you must repent. We've lived with low expectations so long. They've become like part of us. We need to, we need to believe that and press on and do whatever it takes to experience the glory of God like this. 
all of us. We owe that to God, to each other. This is what God's will is. But this, to this one will I look, to him who's humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. You know, I was talking to a young man the other day, and for the first time he saw certain things in his heart, like selfish ambition and pride and so forth and so forth, and he was all upset. And he's like, I don't know how I'm going to get this stuff out of my life. And I said, first of all, you're not. God will get it out of your life. You just have to give it to him because you can't do it. Secondly, it shows the work of grace that you became convicted about these things because you used to be blind to them. And it's just one nature of God taking another layer of the onion off and showing you how he sees you so that you can cry out for mercy. When you start seeing all the wickedness inside your heart, thank God for that. Don't like, oh my God, what am I going to do? I'm going to try harder because you can't, that's, that's your flesh talking. That's why if you really think it through, condemnation is always rooted in self-performance-based uh, pride. It's proudful. Condemnation is when God shows you your heart and you, oh my God, I should have done better. Not really. First, you just say, thank you, God, for opening my blind eyes to this wicked, disgusting, putrid diarrhea of pride or ambition or laziness or whatever he's putting his finger on that I have. Thank you for showing me how vomit it is. That's not even a good grammar. How diarrhea it is. How, you know, one, there's actually one scripture that, you know, looks at our flesh as compared to menstrual rags. It's disgusting. I, whenever I want to think about how sin, I always think about going back to the old Cleveland Stadium. They had this Metropolitan Stadium that sat like 88,000 people. And they had restrooms that were designed for like 3,000 people. And so in the football games, you'd go in there and the, you know, men are gross, especially football guys that are drunk and smoking cigars and cussing and stuff. And they, you know, like the urinals would be filled up with cigars and poop and there'd be people peeing in the corner and so forth. And you just have to, if you have to use the restroom to, to urinate or something, you, you're like trying not to throw up. You know, I made a habit of never eat before the football games or drink anything. So I won't puke if I have to use the restroom. I mean, it, you know, like if you could get your, if you could get God to help you see that as your heart, Jeremiah 17, nine, the heart of man is desperately evil. Then you wouldn't, you know, then you could just say, thank you, Lord, for showing me the reality. And, and this is not something I can do. Save me. Change me. Impart grace to me. Because it was his grace that convicted you in the first place. You would have just remained blind to it. There's some commercial now about people who have become insensitive to the odors of their house. And they're, of course, commercials always, the way the advertising industry works is they try to make you insecure about something so that you'll buy their product to overcome it. So they're, you know, like your house probably smells much more than you think to, the, to someone else. So go out and buy our smelly product. Um, ask the Lord to do that for you tremble at his word. It's amazing to me how many people forget the messages. God brings you under conviction and two weeks later, your, your heart's hard about it again. Really? Seek more conviction. Seek to be more contrite. Fast for it. Pray for it. Study verses that will keep it in front of your heart when God shows you something. Don't harden your heart. Today is the day of salvation. Therefore, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. The word of the Lord is silver, refined seven times. If God shows you something, the next thing that you should expect is you're going to be in a battle to keep it. Because your flesh, the enemy, other Christians even are going to say something else to you. Especially other Christians who it's, you know, aren't in your church or don't have fullness of knowledge or don't have any business even you know or commenting without enough knowledge to comment jeremiah forty four ten. i love this but this is a negative he's saying they but he's done god has done all these things to judge them and to discipline them and to take them through what we call in the eight aspects of covenant sanctions that's what jeremiah 44 is about he's been sanctioning israel disciplining chastising them like a son 
and he, his, here's God's opinion. But they have not become contrite even to this day. So they're the opposite of trembling at God's word. Nor have they feared nor walked in the law or my statutes who I have set before them. Be careful lest what's in you is a heart of stone where, you know, God can show you your unforgiveness or, and, and yet you don't do anything that radical to alleviate that. God can show you you don't uh, understand his fatherly grace, but you're not, you're not doing anything much about that. Now, I'm running out of time, so I'm going to just have to summarize this next part. Matthew 3, just so you know, the, the Beatitudes are nine, and there are three groups of three. And number one, four, and seven go together. Number two, five, and eight go together. And number three, six, and nine go together. And they are kind of stepping stones to each other. And the first two are about being contrite in spirit. Blessed is the poor in spirit. People always go, well, gosh, I went through this time when my marriage broke up or, you know, I kept failing and everything like that. Thank you, Jesus. God was trying to bring you to the starting point of real Christianity, not religiosity. You can be in church 50 years, but if you haven't got to the place of contrite, you haven't got through the starting gates yet. And God will allow lots of things to go wrong in your life so that he can allow you to become poor in spirit. Lots of guys don't understand. The reason God's not brought someone into your life to court is because you're not ready with contriteness yet. And you would be damaging to them because you're not spiritually mature enough yet. These things are the real things of life. This is more than... This is more sure than the law of gravity if you humble yourself you'll be exalted if you exalt yourself you'll be humbled if if you tend to look at other people and you're thinking about their faults and what they don't do right and they don't and they're not so nice to me and and it's always about them it's because you haven't begun to see the grace of being able to look at yourself i can't change how sydney treats me but i can which is usually pretty good, but I can't, but I could change how I respond to it by the grace of God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, and the mourning is over your your own sins, how much you've damaged other people's lives, how many sins of omission you've had. We tend to focus today on sins of commission, like drunkenness or what have you, but Sins of omission, I should have sought God. I should have put the Lord in biblical studies first. I shouldn't have allowed, uh, you know, speaking in tongues for half an hour in the shower every morning or something to get squeezed out of my life. I shouldn't have allowed fasting to get away from me so that I go week after week without a day of fasting. Those are called sins of omission. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Life is a war for insight, wisdom, vision, and perception. Contriteness of spirit begins to restore your sight. I'm pretty much out of time, but I'm going to press on for just another minute and look at there. There's an actual prayer called the act of contrition that some of you who were raised Catholic, which is probably just Jason, Terry, and me, I would guess. Any other Catholics here? Oh, Logan. Um, and this is the traditional version. But I just want to say, uh, and that's in point two down there. You can read it for yourself. But I, I was wanting to do a whole thing about written prayers. You know, it's part of evangelicalism that grew out of the pietistic movement. There had been all Christians had used written prayers for the first 1,750 years of the church. And then it became, well, we want our prayers to be more spontaneous so they can be more of the work of the Spirit, Well, I'm all for that if the Spirit's leading you, but here's a couple things. When Jesus says don't use vain repetition, uh, and he talks about because they suppose they'll be heard for their many words, the meaning has two things. Uh, The Greek word there is batalageo, and we all know that lagos means to say, bato means to stare, or stammer, stutter. 
And it really means to repeat the same things over and over, to use many idle words and so forth. Now, we have pre-written songs. How many would be in favor of like, okay, when John gets up, we all just sing in tongues and we don't have any songs in English. That wouldn't be what 1 Corinthians 14, 14 says, right? It says to pray in tongues and to pray in, in your known language, right? How many would be at, like for the scripture readings, let's just have Catherine come up and just wing it. Like, you know, like start in on the verse, but then just make up stuff here and there and make sure you don't stay with the text so that you can be genuine. And so that you can, we can feel that the spirit is moving. <laughs> She'd probably be working in a few rebukes to me. <laughs> you know, That's about how much sense like not having pre-written prayers means. Uh, just so you know, Jason reads a pre-written prayer to end our meeting in our benediction every Sunday. And that pre-written prayer uh, come, partly comes out of the fact that John tells him what he's speaking about. Usually, right? And then he you know, finds a pre-written prayer that covers that. And he uses scripture and all sorts of prayer history books and stuff like that, right? So um, there's two applications to what Jesus is actually saying. He's saying, number one, don't pray on and on and on and on. Now, if anybody knows me, you know that that's something that, I've, by the grace of God, I've done a lot better in prayer meetings the last couple of years. But before you get on people who pray on and on, because my wife and I are the worst offenders, and then there's two or three other ladies in our church who have a tendency to do it. Most people who pray on and on and on, before you get too harsh on them, understand this. What, they're, what The dynamics of that is simply this. When God gives you a burden, people who don't pray much, it's because they, they're dead. Really, in a prayer meeting, the people who don't, you know, it's because like, I don't have anything I'm that passionate about. With all that's going on in this world, you don't have that anything to pray about? Holy cow, the, you got a bigger problem than the person who prays on and on and on, is all I'm trying to make sure you understand, right? Generally, people who pray on and on before you get all upset at them, it's because of this. When you're under the burden of the Lord, it's hard to get a feeling that you've released that burden to the Lord. And no matter, like, that's why, why I speak on and on and on and on. I'm like, just one more thing. I'm like Columbo, just one more thing, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and uh, I hope you know that show, the best television show of all time. Um, if you haven't, if you don't know Columbo, you don't know anything. But uh, <laughs> so, you know, that's why people pray on and on, because it's hard to get the burden of the Lord off your chest. That's why if you look at the context, Jesus says, uh, they suppose will be heard for their meaning. So don't be like them, for your heavenly Father knows what you need before you ask him. See, what you eventually got to just say is like, God knows what I'm trying to pray into. Even though I can't get the burden of, off my spirit and get it rolled back onto him, that's when it says commit your works to the Lord and trust in the Lord and so forth. If you look at the Hebrew, it means roll that burden off yourself and roll it up onto God. And the people who pre just, that preach on and on and on and that, that, that pray on and on, I'd rather have those people. Why? Because they're under some kind of burden. <laughs> and the rest of you are half dead or half asleep. So on the other hand, those who have that should eventually realize, I can't release my burden to the Lord, so I'll just make it a little shorter. <laughs> and, uh, but the truth is, it comes out of a good thing. The other application to this is what's called formulaic praying, where you think uh, there's a thing actually in the Catholic Church, and kind of bad name, but it's called ejaculations. And supposedly if you say something like, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph a million times, then you work up so many points. And, you know, and, uh, you know uh, Jesus is speaking against both of those things. But th those, that verse has nothing to do with whether a prayer is pre-written. Pre-written acknowledges a couple things that, that we need to know are true. One is the Holy Spirit can inspire you ahead of time. I can tell you my messages are a lot better because I start thinking during the week, Holy Spirit, what would you have me talk about? And then Saturday morning I wake up thinking, how can I put this together and so forth. And, the, and it's much better because it's not spontaneous. The Holy Spirit can speak to you uh, three days before the prayer meeting. He can give you a prophecy that you're supposed to give on Friday night on Wednesday. 
So the other fact is that the Holy Spirit has inspired other people throughout history. Jesus said, I'll build my church, and we're not the only ones he ever spoke to. So let's, let's think about what other Christians have prayed. The act of contrition, oh my God, I'm sorry for my heart, I'm going to translate it, for having offended you, and I detest all my sins. Do we get, that would be grace to get to that point. The reason you keep sinning, you like it. Right? I used to uh, go to Five Guys with all the people after all the meetings. <laughs> I don't do that anymore. But because I like it. <laughs> I detest all my sins because of thy just punishments, but most of all because they offend thee, or you, my God, who are all good and deserving of all my love. When we sin, we're breaking our love relationship with the Lord. There's a time when your wife says, you say, I say, oh, Catherine, I love you, I love you. Then she says, make sure the trash gets taken out on Wednesday nights. <laughs> then I call Sam. No. <laughs> and I firmly resolve with the help of your grace to sin no more and avoid the near occasion of sin. I'll end with that by just saying this. I call that the cliff principle. The reason you fell off the cliff, what were you doing so close to the cliff in the first place? I've left, listed a bunch of scriptures from Proverbs there and so forth, and they're about the guy who takes his way to his heart. I really wish I had time to pray into this, but I, I say this a lot, and I'm, I'm really tired of people who have addictions to pornography or addictions to gluttony or what have you, who will tell, or they don't read the word much, and they tell me the same thing year after year after year. Avoid the near occasion of sin. Like if you really, that flee youthful lust in our day, maybe you got to get rid of your computer, your smartphone, everything else. To avoid gluttony and so forth, maybe you've got to pre-cook some meals. And, you know, th there's things you can do is all I'm saying. Get far away from the cliff. If you are a procrastinator when it comes to reading God's word, step back Every Sunday, look at your whole schedule and eliminate some fun, some frills, some stupid, and schedule the times that you're going to be in God's word. And get darn violent with yourself about it. And don't let anything interrupt it. Amen.